As you turn to your Bibles, in your Bibles to John chapter 5, that will be our text. We also have our memory verse. We're working through John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18 together. And uh, so if you want to turn there first, John chapter 1 first, and then we will turn over to John chapter 5. I'll give you a minute to turn there because, like myself, you're still struggling to get it all together. And so we feel free to read, feel free to quote, but we're going to cover John chapter 1, verses 1 through 11 together. Everybody ready? You're there? All right. Read along with me or quote along with me, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. The world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Amen. I'm proud of you all. Doing good. I'm sorry. I'm the one who messed us up about halfway through. Speaking of halfway, we're about halfway through those as far as word count and verses, and proud of you. Let's keep trekking along. John chapter 5, as you just kind of flip the pages, uh, I just want you to know, uh, just as we're just reflecting um, on uh, just the Father's love in those songs, I was just, as I prayed, I'm just really grateful for the Father's love. And I don't know if this is an appropriate illustration for you or not, but it is what it is. As the pastor, uh, there is kind of that, uh, well, 1 Thessalonians 2 actually would say there's a familial, fatherly relationship between the pastor and his church. And so also while singing, I was just reflecting on the fact that um, I just, as a pastor, just love you and I'm grateful for you and just want to share that with you. So just want you to know I love being your pastor. So grateful uh, for just you all and the ways even recently reflecting on the ways you've encouraged me. I'm just really grateful for that. All right, mushy moment over. Uh, John chapter 5. You want more? I ain't got more, bro. That's all I got. <laughs> That's all I got. John chapter 5. I want to begin reading in verse 18. But remember just from last week, We see this moment where Jesus heals this man. Have a very intimate moment where Jesus heals this man. But John chapter 18, or excuse me, chapter 5, verse 18, we pick up the story as it goes this. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Verse 19. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to all, or to, yeah, to, life to whom he will. 
For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him whom he sent, who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. If you have a fill in the blank, if not, you can grab one in the back if you're taking notes. The main point simply of this text, I believe, and of this sermon is trust in Jesus and have life. If you notice, it was, a, it was uh, three or four weeks ago, weeks are running together, when we studied John chapter 3, that was essentially the main point of my sermon there. I worded it different, believe in Jesus for eternal life. This is trust in Jesus and have life. It's the same truth. I say that because remember, our very first sermon in John was John, at the end of John, where John says, hey, I'm writing all these things so that you may believe in Jesus and have life. Like the whole story of the gospel of John with each sign, with each encounter, is that you may see Jesus for who he is and trust in him as your Lord and Savior for eternal life. We've titled this series just simply Encountering Jesus because John is showing encounter after encounter after encounter of people as they encounter Jesus how that changes everything, beginning with their belief, and it changes their eternal life. And so today's main point is kind of just a repeat of what has continued to be the theme, but trust in Jesus and have life. Two truths that we'll walk through, but before I walk through them, I want to take an opportunity, I want to get just technical for a second. I hope that at times, especially as we read through kind of... story by story through a book of the Bible, we'll have moments where um, how I preach and how I teach will hopefully help us even learn how to better understand different passages of Scripture. So we'll get really technical in just how to interpret this text and how maybe you'll see that my sermon is just really just an unpacking of this. So I want you to look at verse 19 through 24. That's kind of our main text. Why did I choose that as my main text? We read verse 18, which set up the idea of why Jesus was about to say what he says. Uh, But as we unpack that, verses 19 through 24 is our main text. Why did I choose that as my main text? Well, when the book was written, when all New Testament writings were written, um, if you didn't know, they didn't add verses and chapters, and they really didn't even add paragraphs until later on. And the reason for this is because it was really expensive to write. You had to go buy the thing to write on. You couldn't just go down and buy a, a ream of paper or you didn't have a computer to type on. And so all the materials uh, were expensive and not everybody knew how to read and write. And so if you're going to write something, um, you used every bit of that paper. And so there were not a lot of, there were not spaces usually. There was not, uh, you wouldn't waste space giving paragraphs or skipping lines and things like that. But they didn't have... Uh, verses. And so a lot of these stories, if an author wanted to make it clear, like, hey, this is the beginning and end of a text, they would do what is called an inclusio. You may have heard me talk about this before, where basically they give bookends to uh, whatever they're saying. So they start and end in the same way to kind of give hint at this is kind of, all of this is kind of together. So for example, when we look at verses 19 through 24, we see that inclusio when Jesus starts by saying, Truly, truly. There's 25 times in the Gospel of John. This is a very much a Johannine type of writing is when that he references more than all the others these truly, truly statements. Um, once again, 
you didn't very you didn't really give like we say good, better, great to kind of give these um, degrees of emphases on something. This is the best. This is the better. This is the great or whatever. And we use these different words. Well, in both Hebrew and Greek, you very much, you just repeat words. So truly, truly means like, hey, this is this is really true, not just one true, but two truths. And so he does this a lot throughout uh, John's writing. But I want you to notice, if you want to underline, that in verse 18, he starts with truly, truly. So he's starting his, what he's about to say, and then he ends in verse 24 with the same, truly, truly. Right? So this gives us a hint that, hey, all this is to be taken together. So when I was choosing my text for today, I was paying attention to these type ideas in the writer to go, all right, this is the writer meant for this to kind of be all one idea together. And so I need, if I, I need to at least include uh, this. So if I took read one verse out of this, but not include the others within that, I might be missing or taking something out of context. So that just for, for kicks and giggles, there you go. Also, when he says this, truly, truly, I say to you, verse 18, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. We'll begin to unpack that truth in just a second. Um, but then, how from there do we begin to kind of understand his points? So if you and I were creating an outline, open up Word document, create an outline, you know, you put like the main one. And then if we want to put subpoints, we just hit the tab button and it goes over and we got subpoints. I want you to see that this is exactly what uh, Jesus does in his wording and this is exactly what John does in his writing. I want you, we're going to read it and I want you to circle every time you see the English word for Depending on your translation, it might be translated because, right? It, it's a word that can be translated in a number of different ways, but it's, but it's giving explanation. He's saying, I say to you, here's the truth. The son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. And he begins to give sub points to that that helps us understand what he's saying. So let's keep reading. But he can only do what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. Verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives him life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Verse 22. For the Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father whom sent him. And then verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, right? So when we see the first truly, truly, the son can do nothing of his own accord. He gives four defenses of that that are very much just kind of reiterating the same thing in a number of different ways. And then he draws the conclusion. So that's going to be kind of our outline in two truths today. We're going to begin to unpack those things. So truth number one, as we look at this text, based off that kind of uh, outline of the text is this. The divine son, Jesus is the divine son of God who imitates the father. It's important. It's a loaded statement. He is the divine son of God who imitates the father. The fill in the blanks, divine and imitates are kind of main theological truths that we want to make sure we unpack. We kind of already get the theme of this in verse 18, which is why I included it that this is why they were also seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So that's the accusation. Jesus 
We're trying to kill you because we feel as though you are making yourself equal with God. And to make yourself equal with the Father is to make yourself equal with God, which means you are God, and that's heresy, so we're out to kill you. You would think that potentially, if Jesus was not God, he would hope to clarify that. But that's the exact opposite of what he does. He goes, in fact, you're right. I am God. So there's, there, are, there are ideas within Christian theology, um, whether it be different uh, sects within Christianity, which I wouldn't even consider them Christianity based off what my description I'm giving them, where they go, Jesus was not God. He was, he was God-like, he was whatever, but he was not God. And he never claimed to be God. Okay, read four verses here because it's very clear that he is, he understands the accusation John is making it clear to us the accusation was that he was making himself equal to God. That's what was perceived. And in his response to that perception was truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. So he's beginning to speak to that he is in unity with the father, unlike any of us are in unity with the father. Four, and he begins to give reasons for it. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. Once again, unity. Now, it's important as we begin to get into the doctrine of the Trinity, which is a doctrine within the Christian faith that honestly, we can describe it, but we can never perfectly describe it because it doesn't perfectly make sense to us. But there's a distinction within the Trinity between the persons. Jesus keeps that distinction here. He does not say, I am the Father, but he says, I am in perfect imitation and unity with the Father. So he speaks to oneness but also different personhood, because he never claims to be the Father, but he does claim to be God. So if that's not confusing, okay, you're much smarter than I, but it's still both true. He's not claiming to be the Father, but he's claiming to be equal with the Father, as in one person, or excuse me, as in one substance, one thing, but different persons. And so he's, he's doing that. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. His divinity is leading to a perfect imitation of the will of the Father. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. We'll begin to unpack the rest of the ideas later. But the divine Son who imitates the Father. It's important as we begin to think about the main point of the sermon, which is what? Trust in Jesus and have life. We within the Christian faith, how can we confidently say, trust in Jesus and have life, if it isn't for truth number one? The, the idea that Jesus is divine, not only is he divine, but he is in perfect agreement with God the Father, means that he is worthy and able to be trusted and bear our trust. Bear our trust is important. He's able to bear our sin, as we see in the rest of the gospel, that he's able to bear all that is necessary to give us life, but he's also equal and imitates the Father in the sense of that they are in cahoots together in this plan of redemption. That he's not a rogue agent or a rogue person or a rogue divinity, but instead he is in perfect imitation with the Father and is working on behalf of the Father as a divine agent to bring about redemption into our lives. If you and I don't see Jesus as divine, then why in the world can you trust him with a divine reality of life? Yes, we have physical life, and yes, the physical life will come and go, and we understand that. 
but our hope is not in the uh, ongoing or completion of physical life. Our hope is in the ongoing of all life. Our hope is in Jesus on the other end of our physical life, not meaning that our relationship with him necessarily starts at the end of physical, but what happens when we think about those things changes everything. He is the divine son who imitates the father, and therefore we can trust in him and have life. He imitates a good, good father. He is working faithfully on behalf of the father, and he is a divine son of God. Now, I want us to keep and hold and balance the main point of the sermon, but also want to give some practical applications as we begin to think about this. The overall application would be verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him, whom he sent may have eternal life. Okay, one. All right, so the application overall is John's writing so that we can trust in Jesus for eternal life. But let's get practical even about the reality of the fact that Jesus imitated the goodwill of the Father and what that means for the goodness of God's plan of redemption. So not to make us in any way equal with Jesus, but for sake of practical illustration, I could give faithfully, I think, an encouragement to us. I think a call for us would be to imitate this reality. Not that we're divine, but in the same way Jesus imitates the goodwill of the Father and that, that brings about goodness in God's creation, you and I also should imitate the goodwill of the Father and imitate the goodwill of the Son in order to bring about a goodness in his redemption. When we talk about the fact that we value the reading of Scripture, meaning we ultimately turn to the Bible as our ultimate guide for life and truth, part of that is we recognize that we trust the teaching of God's Word and what it means for God's creation. It is His creation. And we trust that He knows that creation better than us. And He trusts that He knows our lives better than us. So even in difficult passages, and a, a shocker, uh, I, even as a pastor, have come to many texts and go, I don't know that I fully get that. And at first, I'm not sure that I agree with that. But I also recognize at the same time, who am I to judge the sovereign mind of God and will of God? I started the, the today's um, um, service with Ecclesiastes 3.11. For those uh, here, you heard that. And it's a text that says, in God's perfect timing, he makes all things good. But that text is said in the context of Solomon is also the same passage where he says, there's a time to be born, there's a time to die. There's a time to plant, there's a time to reap. There's a time to laugh, there's a time to cry. There's, he goes back and forth, and he's talking about all the different seasons of our life. But right in the middle of that, he says, but in God's perfect timing, he makes all things good and beautiful. Then he goes on to say that everything that is has always been, and everything that will be has always been. That you can do nothing to change God's ultimate timing and plan. Therefore, in good times of laughter and of sorrow and in life and in death, we experience time in its seasons. But God stands above those time and is unchanging in his plans of redemption. But therefore, we can trust that in all seasons, good and bad, we can trust that God is working to make all things righteous. Therefore... I want to be someone who is on that plan. And so when we see Jesus say, hey, I'm on that plan. I'm living out as the divine son. I'm imitating and living out that divine plan. And a practical application for us is, one, to believe in that person. But then to, two, after we have believed, is to take his word and go, this is his plan revealed to us. We can trust that his plan is better than our plan. I, I, there's been so many times 
practically as a father. Let's take baseball, for example. I'm so proud of my kids. And so you're just going to get baseball illustrations, especially now that my kids are playing baseball, and I love baseball. All sports are great, but none are better than baseball, all right? If you didn't know that, and go Mets. Um, so I love baseball, and there's, this is Sam's first year playing, and Sam's a pretty athletic kid. Um, his focus and attention much greater than Levi's, uh, but so Sam's, Sam's, you know, Sam's, he's, he wants it, and he wants to do well, and he's, he tries. I can't tell you how many times throughout this season where I'm trying to teach him something, and for whatever, I'm just going, hey, j- just trust me. <laughs> like, do this, and you'll be good to go. Do this, and be good to go. Watch me. I, I mean, I don't know that it's helpful, but I'll say, I'll do something, and I'll try to get him to do something, and I'm teaching him just constantly, but there's just, hey, just trust me. If you do this, you'll be successful. If you do this, and hitting, it'll be helpful. If you do this, and throwing, it'll be helpful. If you listen to your coaches, like, I'm what, what am I trying to do? I'm trying to tell him, hey, you are completely ignorant of what you're doing. You think you might know what's better, but I've been playing baseball a long time. Just trust me. Not a perfect illustration, but I, I promise you, if we could really see from God's perspective, it would be like our first day on the baseball field going, God, I don't understand why you want me to do this. And, and actually, when I realized when I was playing, when I was trying to describe baseball to Sam, I was like, this is a kind of complicated, and some things don't really make sense. Like some of these, I don't understand why this happens, this happens, but it is, it's just part of the game. And you've got to play it right to be a part of the game and you can be successful. You can be successful as it was intended to be. And I just want to say this, when it comes to God's plan, the encouragement for us is even if we don't understand, like for example, basic question, why do I run to first instead of running that way to third? Actually, I don't know, because I guess technically you could get around, it's just part of the rules. It's a bad illustration to say sometimes we don't understand why we're, God's telling us to do this versus that. But we can trust that he knows best. And we can trust him. And so practical application as we look at Jesus said, hey, I am God. In person, the divine son, I will imitate the father. I trust the goodwill of the father. That's what's best, even if it meant him giving up his life. Remember the moments, the night that he was betrayed, where he cried, hey, is there any other way? Like, if like, Father, like, can, is there another way we can make this happen? But not my will, your will be done. We see that we have a divine son, which means we can trust him with our lives. He's divine. But we also see that he's perfectly working out and imitating the will of the Father. And the encouragement for us is to have faith in that divine son and us to imitate the will of the Father as been given to us. Truth number two, not only do we hit Jesus, the divine son, of God who imitates the Father, but he's also the humble messenger of God who depends on the Father. Here is one of the great paradoxes, once again, of theology, of where we would say that God is, or excuse me, that Jesus is 100% God, divine Son, and a humble human messenger. He's 100% human. How can you be 100% God and 100% human at the same time, it's one of the great antitheses and paradoxes within the Christian faith. Uh, but it's, it's true, theologically true. He is the humble messenger of God who depends on the Father. At the same time, he is divine and imitates the Father. He is also one who is a humble messenger being fully dependent upon the Father. Look at verse 21. Or let's go back to verse 20, actually. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. 
right? So the son's actions are not only imitating the will of the father, but he's dependent upon the father for that will. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. Notice the contingency of the son giving life is dependent upon the father and his plan to give life. For the father judges no one, but he has given all judgments to the son. It's not that the father doesn't have judgment, but the father has given over that judgment to the son. And the son's judgment is dependent upon the father. Once again, speaking to their unity, but also their distinction, speaking to imitation, but also this need for dependence that Jesus has upon the father. That what? That, the, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. See that, it, once again, this connection between them. So the worship of the Father is dependent upon the worship of the Son and vice versa. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. There's a dependency here. The Father, whom, the Father who sent him. And truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. I... I I know at times in our 21st century advanced culture that we think we have, it is just, it seems archaic to say this, but I just want to say it plain and simple, and I just want to say it's what we believe. We truly believe that there is life for eternity. We believe that there's life eternal, and we actually believe that that life is dependent upon one person and one person only ultimately in Jesus. That the Father has given that judgment to the Son and the Son has fulfilled the necessity to make a way for us to have life, meaning he was the sacrifice who gave his life for the world. We actually believe that. And here's the thing, if you're in the room today and you don't believe that, you must come to at least reconcile the question, what if this is actually true? What if the unpopular opinion is actually true? Doesn't mean it is. Popular, unpopular doesn't make it true or not. Whether your friends believe it or don't believe it, don't make it true or not. For the Christian in here who says, I'm a Christian because my parents are Christian and therefore I just trust it, that doesn't make you a Christian or not. Whether it's you grew up in the Christian faith, you're around Christians, or you're never around Christians, your culture does not make something true or not. I know in our postmodern culture, they would actually say that, yes, truth is determined by what people say it is to be true and what your culture determines true. But at the end of the day, whether our culture believes it or not, whether you believe it or not, whether your mama or daddy believes it or not, whether your best friend or roommate believes it or not, the question simply is, is it true? Is Jesus God? And if he is God, did he actually say and make a way to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That he is that. What if this is actually true? And whether you choose to believe it or not does not at all determine how we care for you or love for you, nothing like that. But, it, but I, want, I just want you to be challenged with, like, you got to at least wrestle with that. And if you say it's not true, then I hope that it's based off just at least the faithful due diligence to the claim that's being made. The claim that's being made. Some would say, well, I think the only reason 
that people believe it is because people believed it for 2,000 years. It used to be the popular cultural truth, and some people just still believe it. They've been indoctrinated in cultural because culture does affect what you believe. And so just because maybe it's still a prominent thing somewhat in culture, that's why some people still believe it. That may be why people believe it, but that doesn't make it true or not. And so I just simply ask the question and want to make this statement and simply give the challenge. What if what I'm saying today is right? What if what Jesus said about himself is right? What if? You know, I preach this, and I, I, can, I, can I just be honest one more time, and then I'll wrap up. Just because I'm a pastor and just because I've been a Christian for the majority of my life doesn't mean I still don't wrestle with this question. I, I did grow up in a home that, of my father who's a pastor. And I did grow up in a family who just faithfully loved Jesus and taught me to love Jesus. And sometimes I wrestle with the question, do I believe this just because the culture I grew up in believed it? And I've personally had to wrestle with this. Why do I believe this? Why? Do I believe it because I actually believe it's true or do I believe it because the people I really like believe it's true? And, and so I say that to give you permission to go, hey, if this is a question that you wrestle with, so do I. And I just wanna say, in seasons that I've wrestled with it, I just actually still believe that because of the way I've seen God work in my life, the way I've seen his truth, his word to be faithfully true, and I believe there's great rational arguments and understandings. And truthfully, the more I study scripture, the more I'm going, yeah, it just, I just believe it. And I believe that the spirit of God has opened up my heart even to believe it. It's not fully rational, but it is rational. It's not all spiritual, but it definitely can't be not spiritual. The spirit of God works in my life. And so I just want you to hear me say, as your pastor, I've wrestled with this question and I've doubted the answer of my belief to this question. But I need you to know, at the end of the day, I still believe this. I do. And I believe in what I'm saying, the simple truth that trust in Jesus and have life. Don't trust in anything else because nothing else is divine and worthy of your worship. Your own goodness isn't worthy to be trusted in. Your own rational thought ultimately isn't worthy to be trusted in. It'd be like my eight-year-old son trying to rationalize why what I'm telling him about baseball just isn't good. He'd be like, you don't know what you're talking about. Swing the ball. Remember, swing the bat. I don't, apparently don't know what I'm talking about either. Swing the ball. <laughs> Stick to golf. No, golf is not my thing. <laughs> but when we go, God, I just, I just don't understand how that makes sense. We understand, this is why I would continue to encourage you, read God's word, because 2 Timothy 3 tells us that God has given us everything we need for salvation and godly living. He hasn't given us everything we need for everything in here, right? He hasn't, but he has given us everything we need for salvation and godly living in here. So as it comes to the great questions of life of why am I here, why do I exist, and what's the purpose of all this, he has faithfully given you everything. And so I pray whether you're a faithful Christian, whether you're a skeptic, whatever it may be, devour this book to see what God says about himself. And I pray that you will find what I've said today to be true, that it is true, and that you would trust in Jesus and have life. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you, and we trust you today. And here's the thing. I'm, I'm praying in faith because I believe, God, that you are God. 
And Jesus, that you are the one who came and died. And Spirit of God, you're the one who's working in the midst of this world right now in order to point us to the Son and exalt the Son and to give us faith in the Son. Because I believe all that's true, I'm just simply asking this, that you would work in people's lives to reveal yourself to them in a very specific way in their lives. You say in this text, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Jesus, I ask this week that you would help the people in this room who are still struggling with belief in you, that you would allow their eyes to marvel at how you reveal yourself to them. God, you've done that for me. You've revealed it in your word by allowing me to see things and have it make sense and go, oh my goodness, this, this is just, I just believe it. But you've also worked miracles and things in my life to go, only God, only Jesus could do this just like you did with the lame man in our story from last week. Only Jesus, only God could do this. And so I pray that you would work in our lives, that you would pursue us in such a way that you would help us believe. Because I can't believe in you by my own merit. If it was up to me, I wouldn't believe in you, probably. Scripture says that our hearts are deceitfully wicked above all things. If it's left up to us, we will worship ourselves and this world all day long. But it's because you love us that you came and revealed yourself to us. So I'm just simply asked that, Spirit of God, Holy Spirit, that you would do your work of revealing the Son to every person in here this week. That tonight, even. You open our eyes to see that you really are who you say you are. That you would help us believe and see you. That we would trust in you and have life eternal. That our eyes would be opened. That we would see your goodness. That we would believe. And that we would find our everything in you. Because you are the divine son who humbly became a messenger so that we could hear the good news of the gospel. So that we can trust in you and have life. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. You can email us at info at newhopeny.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for those outlets is newhopenyc. Our website is www.newhopeny.org. If you are in the New York City area, we have 4 p.m. worship gatherings on Sundays at 164-2 Gothels Avenue in Jamaica, Queens. We're praying for you, and we hope to see you soon.